Welcome to the Reed Smith Conversations, brought to you by Reed Smith, the dynamic international law firm dedicated to helping blue chip clients move their businesses forward. Its long-standing relationships, international outlook, and collaborative structure make it a go-to partner for speedy resolution to complex disputes, transactions, and regulatory matters. You deserve purposeful, highly engaged client service that drives progress for your business. And Reed Smith looks forward to a conversation with you. This is The Collaborative Decade, episode two of the four-part Reed Smith Conversations series. I'm your host, Susan Bird, with a group of business and thought leaders with strong opinions. I'll refer to their titles, but you may want to check out their impressive bios and about Reed Smith on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. On this episode, we talk of collaboration, why some find it so important, and why, when used improperly, it can undermine productivity and eventually an organization's success. So what is collaboration? It's, it's impossible not to derive essentially exponential value from collaboration when you're using it properly. One person working on something is never going to be anywhere as effective as two people or three people or four people, etc., working on it. That's Stephen Rubenstone, founder and CEO of Collaborism, a startup whose core business is instigating collaboration. And here's Perry Napolitano, a commercial litigation partner at Reed Smith. He works out of Pittsburgh, and he gives the process a human dimension. Uh, Taking someone who was formerly a stranger and and making um, four hands more productive than two, you know, is probably as old as mankind. Having someone who will watch your fire and make sure it doesn't go out while you go down to the stream and get water. However you define it, lots of folks are waxing poetic about collaboration these days. We gathered a corporate CEO, the head of a powerful nonprofit foundation, the former deputy mayor of New York City, the corporate counsel to a global bank, a founder and CEO of a startup, partners of a global law firm, a professor focused on collaboration, and even a globally recognized artist. And I asked all of them why collaboration is so valuable in ensuring that things get done, products made, results endure. They have the answers, including how sometimes collaboration can become counterproductive, causing delay, messiness, sometimes even chaos, especially in one's personal life, and ultimate failure. Please note that the opinions expressed in the Reed Smith Conversations are personal opinions of its participants themselves and not intended to represent the views of their employers or other organizations to which they belong. Stephen Rubenstone is the entrepreneur in this group, and his words really seem to apply to enterprise corporations, too. When you get people from disparate parts of the organization and different levels of experience to interact, innovation can sometimes result. Another critical component of collaboration is completely different experience uh, mentoring me. I would never have that. I would have to have built my own company and spent 30 years of my life. You know, collaboration is saving hundreds of years of time. It makes startup possible. The definition of collaboration eluded some I talked with, but there was no shortage of enthusiasm for what they see as its power. 
Frederick Anderson is CEO of Cellmark. It's a Swedish company transforming itself from a pulp and paper trading business to a global logistics powerhouse. He told me collaboration is the key driver of Cellmark's transformative effort. He equates it with teamwork. Collaboration is like a conversation when you actually move back and forth and seeking to improve. You bounce ideas because no matter if you're smarter, higher or lower in the organization, your input can actually be very valuable. And when that dialogue happens, you create this collaborative mode where you think, my voice matters, your voice matters. This can be synthesized and the more people that are engaged, the more input we get. And collaboration or team is always more constructive. And teamwork is collaboration. Carolyn Pepper is a partner at Reed Smith based in London, where her work covers media, technology, and other areas. And here's how she describes collaboration when I called her in London. So for me, collaboration is really is really putting together expertise from many different companies that can be found in different entities and using that, um, working together to get the best deal or the best ideas or products or services for your client or your customer. Rick Reed is the visionary co-founder of the Garfield Foundation and of ReAmp, where he orchestrated a groundbreaking collaboration among 70 NGOs and 10 foundations to transform the Midwestern United States from a leader in emissions to a leader in clean energy. In 2007, governors from all seven Midwest regions signed an accord committing their states to slashing global warming pollution by 80% over the next 40 years. I talked with Rick, who was in a busy office in California when he took my call. We think of collaboration as systems-informed collaboration. And it was my observation for many years, you'd be around a table with really smart people. But oftentimes when in these strategy conversations, people were simply updating their position rather than engaging in an active listening conversation. And what we found is that the culture to collaborate doesn't exist. It's a competitive system. Everyone needs to have their particular part of the work stand out. And so I would ask myself, is there a method that would help people take a step back and understand how their work fits in to all of the work that's being done in a given field? And so when we think of collaboration, we think of a systems-informed collaboration, meaning we have a set of tools that we work with folks in a given issue area to develop a a map of the system we're all seeking to reform and try to understand the big moving parts and what is keeping that current system producing things we don't like. Is there a way we can have insight into that and then think of how we can align around pushing it to do things that we do want it to do, do more of what we want and less of what we don't want. So for us, collaboration goes deeper than just talking about, can't we um, do something together? It's more based on a a shared understanding of what it is that is creating the problem. There is no changing a, a system without collaborators in different domains, even though our work is different, because you may be working in the supply chain, I may be working with medical researchers, 
of somebody else maybe working with disease impacted communities. But if we all have a similar sense of what we're trying to push the system towards doing, then we can have a collaboration. It's this informed collaboration. The REAMP program is a legendary example of big scale collaboration. Kevin McCarthy is the Senior Executive VP and General Counsel of BNY Mellon and sits on their Executive Committee, and he has led large-scale collaborations in the business world. He began describing collaboration somewhat like Frederick Anderson did, whom we referred to earlier. I'm a huge believer in collaboration. I don't think it's possible to thrive, not even survive, in a sophisticated business environment without collaboration across and within departments across the company, it's critical. In fact, my motto is um, um, communicate um, and collaborate. That's how we work. And yeah, so I'm a big fan of it, and I tend um, to think of it less through the concept of partnership than through the concept of teamwork. Kevin's pretty serious about the importance of collaboration. I'm in an organization with 52,000 people, Uh, 37 countries, even in the legal department alone, we've got 520 employees. Mm -hmm. Unless we are constantly communicating, cooperating, collaborating, stuff isn't going to get done. Some of it's intuitive, but after you've been in in doing this stuff for a while, you realize uh, unless you're doing that, you're not doing your job. What about government? Stephen Goldsmith is professor of the practice of government at Harvard, and he's the former mayor of Indianapolis and deputy mayor of New York City. His latest book just out is A New City OS, The Power of Open, Collaborative, and Distributed Governance. If you're going to have a functioning, high-quality city or community, you have a governance network, right? So how does the city hall, if you will, uh, interact with residents, community-based organizations, for-profit companies, so that governing by network is by definition collaborative, and how do you establish a platform for that collaboration is what uh, I work on. So what should the city look like if it's a platform rather than just a recipient of complaints? So there's social media data, there's texting data, there's people walking in, there's people calling in, there are community groups that get together to say, here's what I want my park to look like or, or whatever, right? So, so the movement is from this highly centralized, highly professionalized, we know what's in your best interest, to a platform government. That, that mines data, organizes data, looks at outliers in the data, works with communities to, to, to manage their sentiments, right, so that you find out what people are saying or thinking, and put that together in a way that produces solutions rather than just responses. Uh, we want to identify problems before they occur, right? You want to identify families where a child's going to be abused and make an intervention based on some set of facts. You want to figure out where the next pothole is going to occur, not where the last one occurred, right? You want to use predictive analytics to figure out where the next fire is going to occur. Just for a quick example, when I was deputy mayor of New York and we had a bad fire and you tried to look at whether the fire department, the buildings department had responded to complaints. And they say, well, we get 50, 100,000 complaints a year. How are we going to respond to every complaint? But then you back up and say, okay, Let's use predictive analytics, and we actually did this, right? Look at 311 calls, 911 calls, code inspections, uh, mortgage foreclosures, tax delinquencies, and you can predict which of those complaints is going to lead to a fire by a thousand times over. So in every category, use data, listen to the citizens, collaborate with the citizens, but then predict where there are going to be problems, preempt the problems. 
solve for solutions rather than just a set of activities. I think that the challenge here is that all of us who get trained as professionals, right, whether you're a lawyer or you're the commissioner of transportation, develop a set of skills that they apply to a problem. So now when we talk about collaboration, the issue is how do you listen differently? How do you curate that information differently? How do you factor that into your decision making? Identifying a mission that you want to collaborate around, set up a system to listen to each other, and then to organize that information in a way that produces a improved solution. So distributed platforms and collaboration should equal collective action. Collective action should equal better communities. Frederick Anderson sees collaboration as a business imperative. Collaborative wins. Always wins. It's logic. Uh, take a family, take a football team, take any uh, scouts, uh, cooking classes, no matter where you go. If it is collaborative, you win. It's so natural. There is no other alternative if you want to be successful. What Wall Street is doing, running companies by KPIs only, they destroy value, they don't build value. Short term, you maximize gains, but you disappear. And you know about the lifespan of listed companies in the U.S. What happens? They disappear. They disappear. Poof. A star one day, gone the next. Perry Napolitano says that corporate clients now require that law firms they hire work collaboratively with one another. We work with clients who have national and international and typically global presences. And so we needed to partner with other law firms that up until that point would have been viewed for the most part as competitors. Now we're viewed as um, people with whom we would partner in order to advance the client's interests. And that that has um, only increased in frequency and intensity, um, but accepting it and embracing it has generated new commercial opportunities too. It's fairly common now for me to be on the phone with uh, a partner from another law firm and us talk about a, a joint effort in order to do client service or frankly even acquire new business from clients. Kevin McCarthy tells of leading BNY Mellon's effort to plan for its orderly dissolution in case of insolvency. It's a report now required and popularly referred to as a bank's living will. We have had to spend north of $100 million, as did all of our peers, to come up with very detailed, very elaborate, very complicated playbooks, plans. We have something like 70 different playbooks that are going to guide the process of what happens if Bank of New York Mellon, you know, completely crashes. In order to do that, we've had to pull in and collaborate amongst every single function across the firm, business, business partner, operations, technology, globally, right, because we run a global business, and figure out how, how would all those dominoes fall and how would we create plans that would allow us to, you know, uh, continue to operate the critical business services that we provide to the financial markets at the same time we are winding down our operations. We never would have been able to create those plans without intense collaboration across the entire company. Carolyn Pepper talks of companies collaborating on products that they couldn't produce alone. Autonomous vehicles are an area where businesses are able to harness their different abilities and specializations 
in order to produce the best product for, for customers. BMW, I know, are working with um, Intel and Mobileye, an Israeli tech company, which, um, which works with vision-based driver assistance systems, and they're working on autonomous vehicle technology because obviously BMW need the, the, the technological expertise and obviously Intel and Mobileye need the automobile expertise to bring together the right product. So that's collaboration in, in producing something that, that the customers want. Carolyn makes an effort to connect traditional enterprise clients with entrepreneurial companies. We introduce some of our traditional clients with more innovative um, startup clients. That can often provide very good results because obviously our more traditional businesses are looking to gain the expertise that some of the startup businesses have and they don't. And it can be an excellent way um, to acquire expertise without having to hire it in for yourself. Stephen Rubenstone cites further value for enterprise companies when they want quick feedback on new products or services they're considering bringing to market. Enterprise has an extremely similar need as the solo entrepreneur and inventor, which is that enterprise needs to innovate quickly. And they, they're investing a lot in research and development. You know, we actually were paid by a telecom company and they needed help with their telecom API, candy.io. And they invested in collaborism to run a few contests where our engineering community, and that's very key right there. It's the fact that we have a community of engineers that, that the enterprise needs badly to not only invest in new products, but to get immediate feedback on the products they're building. Sometimes companies that are otherwise competitors collaborate to solve a mutual problem. Rick Reed calls this pre-competitive collaboration. There's an apparel industry coalition. They have a terrible problem with Teflon chemicals, essentially, which you've heard, I'm sure, lots about in terms of their health problems. That's the thing that provides um, a waterproof coating on rain jackets and and, and, um, rainwear. And Columbia, Patagonia, REI, all those companies use the same Teflon chemicals. None of them want to use them, but they're not any good alternatives right now that are cost effective and that perform well. They've come together in a pre-competitive collaboration to develop those alternatives, which then the entire outdoor industry will be free to use. They're not looking at this as a competitive advantage. They're looking at it as a social good that they can do to raise the standards of their whole industry up. So that's an example of that that kind of collaboration. Startup innovators can access valuable expertise from strangers, scaling collaborative power to global proportions. Here's Stephen Rubenstone to explain. We have a woman in New York City who's building a pet product. She's a Columbia MBA but she has no skills in mechanical design. So the collaboration that happens there is her being paired to an elite engineer in India who's a 22-year-old expert in mechanical design who's collaborating with her with his very opposing skill sets, which is critical to collaboration. You have the business mind, you have the mechanical engineering mind, and they together are working on building her pet product. But what's really unique is not just that east to west connection between entrepreneurs exchanging skills and building products together affordably. It's the fact that we bring in our 130,000 plus community of engineers and entrepreneurs into each specific job. So it's really a three-dimensional product development process where this woman, Anna, is not only working with John Rodriguez, the Indian engineer, she also has hundreds of engineers commenting on her 
each sub-step of the development of her pet product. So she's getting advice on computer-aided design, on the software she should be using, very esoteric engineering principles that are critical to the development and scalability of her business. You have engineers and designers commenting on the design of the product. So you get this massive uh, community brain of diverse skill sets that's able to actually help her improve the potential of her job. We'll be right back. The Reed Smith Conversations are brought to you by Reed Smith with its more than 1,700 lawyers in 27 offices throughout the United States, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, because Reed Smith believes that interactive discussion can drive meaningful change. Reed Smith also believes that the practice of law has the ability to drive progress. They are focused on outcomes, are highly collaborative, and have deep industry insight that, when coupled with their local market knowledge, allows them to articulate and address your needs. Now, those were all positive examples of collaboration, but there are challenges. Here are Rick Reed's observations. Our culture doesn't reward collaboration in the way that it rewards outsized individual or organizational achievement. And so making myself look better than the next guy, whether you're a company that's going for market share or whether you're an NGO trying to grow uh, your, your budget, looking better than the next guy is the general culture. And so that cultural headwinds that you need to work uh, around, and that's uh, not easy. Secondly, Building shared understanding, if that's sort of the basis of this work, that's a, a still evolving field. You're not guaranteed at the end of the day, after you've invested a certain amount of time and effort of trying to understand a system and look for leverage points, that you're going to come up with ones that everybody uh, aligns around. There's a, there's a saying that I really like which, when it comes to collaboration, which is, is the squeeze worth the juice and the squeeze being bringing people together, hosting conversations, bringing consultants and tools to the table that help advance uh, in, a, in a more rapid fashion. People's thinking about how to get to what really matters in terms of, of strategy and how to separate what's important from what matters. Now, absence of leadership can kill collaboration. Here's Kevin McCarthy. You need to have a clear leader of a particular issue or, or program or project or situation. Collaboration doesn't mean, for example, six voices directing things, right? That's one of the problems with collaboration, where you, you pull everybody together and everybody's collaborating, everybody's contributing, but not everybody's leading, right? You have to have clear leadership who's setting deliverables, goals and defining the outcome. And then everybody comes together around that. One of the reasons why it's hard to get things done is sometimes people think collaboration means decision-making by consensus. Stephen Rubenstone takes this further. He sees the leader's role as that of referee. There's never been a successful company built without some really annoying people that were part of that in-house team. So a core part of collaboration working is having a CEO or a leader that can stand between extremely polarizing personalities, extremely talented people that are going to aggressively attack each other, whether it's verbally. And, you know, I was reading Elon Musk's biography, him and his brother 
actually physically fought. You know, they would wrestle each other. So there's a lot of fighting. You got to have someone that can clear those conflicts up. So the biggest risk with collaboration is you have to know who you're getting in bed with and you need to have someone playing referee. Sometimes the failure dies a slow death from inattention. Perry Napolitano describes what I heard from others as well. We, we had a, a joint program with a client that seemed like a really good idea. And there seemed to be a lot of enthusiasm around it. And there were initial meetings. And then it just died. And I think it died because people got distracted and, and there wasn't, you know, any real institutional energy behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, that, and that, frankly, is a fairly common problem with a lot of good ideas, both inside the business and in terms of things like community outreach. Sometimes the necessary preliminary questions just didn't get asked. Sai Pitatella, who's a Reed Smith attorney and an expert in mergers, acquisitions, and cross-border transactions among global clients, is based in Dubai. Sai sees collaboration through the lens of relationships. Here's his description over not the best Skype connection. He was talking with me from Dubai of a failed collaboration at a law firm early in his career. The law firm at which I was working was seeking to merge with another law firm. And you can, you can think of this in any context, whether it's in sports or in politics or in, in sort of a blended family context, whatever you want. And it didn't go well because of the lack of due diligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really more of a brand-driven, uh, overarching kind of ego-driven exercise where Team A thought that it would be a good fit with Team B because the two names were great and they had great reputation. And they thought, well, what could go wrong if we just merge these two contingents together? All should be well. And it didn't go well. And eventually there was like a demerger and people left and there was a lot of fallout. Each individual should have been engaged on both sides of this merger and should have done his and her own soul searching as opposed Mm -hmm. to just kind of riding with the flow and, and there was no collaboration there it was a very tragic situation people lost time and money and uh it, i think it hindered a lot of people's careers so uh a, a crash that a crash and burn that i think could have been avoided a growing problem is the pressure collaboration can put on people to be in constant connection which can become a time suck based on a fear of missing out here's Perry Napolitano and the pressure that some feel to collaborate. It's more important now than it was in the past because virtually everybody is doing it. And if you're not, you're probably missing an opportunity for your company or your cause uh, because other people are doing it and by de- almost by definition, then they're running faster than you are. So you can probably continue to do the things that you've always done Without collaboration, it's just that people will be passing you by. Rob Cross is a professor of global leadership at Babson College and a recognized expert on what helps people get things done. He's concerned about the collaborative overload that Perry referred to, and he's developed an assessment tool to help individuals change behavior in ways that can result in more efficient collaboration. Basically what we've seen is the collaborative intensity of work exploding. So in the groups that I've run, we can see about a 50% or more increase in the amount of time that people spend in collaborative activities. So time on the phone, on email, uh, or in meetings, virtual or face-to-face. Over the past eight to 10 years, even in the more transactional kinds of work, is a 50% uh, increase. And so that 
really got me focused on who's absorbing that, right? Who's paying attention to it? If you had a increase in consumption of any resource by that great an amount over that short a time frame, the CFOs would be all over it, trying to understand it. But, but the reality with this is, you know, the, the number of teams people are on half the time, we don't know the emails, the all the different demands placed on people. It's a very invisible tax. I, I hear, you know, emails are immediately pulled out as, oh, these things are killing me. Well, it's not really email. It's the culture of use around it. And, you know, then you say, well, you as a leader, how often are you sending emails at 10 o'clock at night because you want to get it off your plate, but you're causing churn around you in ways that you may not even appreciate to some degree because you feel good. You've cleared your plate off, but you put work out to people at a time at night that you shouldn't have, <laughs> you know. So it, it, and same thing with meetings. You know, it's not so much the meetings themselves. It's the culture that people allow to form around them in terms of people showing up prepared, showing up fully engaged, running them with some kind of structure, um, you know, all these subtle things that the more efficient collaborators tend to do a little bit more systematically. And they and they buy back, a, you know, a very significant portion of their time. Um, you know, we can go out and analyze who are those people that give the greatest return uh, in networks. So they, they support the most others, they enable others to get their work done, to sell work, to deliver, whatever it may be that we're looking at. Who are the people that have the greatest impact but take the least time uh, in groups? And you can imagine a two by two where you have, you know, those people that I'll, I'll call efficient collaborators. They support the most others and yet they take proportionately less time. And we focus really heavily on them and seeing what's unique about how you, you know, uh, impose structure in your work, about how you choose to show up from an identity or, or belief standpoint and a behavioral you know, view around how do you manage meetings, emails, you know, other tactical things. And the basic idea that we find is if we can get people to do three or four things differently, they get back about 18 to 24 percent of their time, collaborative time. Um, but those three or four things are very different for almost everybody. <laughs> you know, you're really it's not a silver bullet kind of solution. Most people say collaborations come from the top. But Frederick Anderson says not always. He recalls a large holding company whose CEO was uninterested in working collaboratively, but the situation was rescued by a subordinate taking over. CFO holding, uh, CEO holding is a financial guy only thinking about how can I reduce cost? And he feels that he can treat us like dust. So there is no collaboration, right? It's not collaborative. Then the CEO of the pulp company, he, he clearly gets this and he says, okay, let's take a step back, you and I, and we can define how we want to work together. What is a reasonable price for your service? What do you need to be happy? And all of a sudden you change the tune, right? And it becomes collaboration rather than I want to win and you don't get anything. Or I decide I'm your master and you're the servant. And so that was an example where from the top of the company, you have a different tune, but people underneath almost subversively steps in and create the collaborative situation because they need that in order for it to function. So to avoid failure, I asked everyone, can collaboration be learned? Can it be taught? Is it like teaching your kids to share? Sai Pitatala says everyone can become collaborative. These are acquired traits. I don't think uh, anyone is born being a sort of master uh, collaborator. Now, I, I think some people are more attuned 
to uh, others, and they and that makes for them being better communicators. Mm-hmm. But this this kind of activity is learned, and practice makes perfect. And I think nothing beats the power of consistency. Frederick Anderson says we have innate collaborative tendencies, but we have to train for it. If you look at the history of mankind, whenever there is a threat, even in the pre-Neolithic area, I mean, the tribe came together, they organized themselves towards uh, outside threats. So part of it, it's, it's inherent in our DNA. Partly it needs to be trained because there is so much of cultural values trained in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that still lingers. So I think you need to have a concerted focus on training collaboration. I'm I'm just looking inside my own company where it is about how much money do I make in my division, what's my personal bonus, and how do you break that down? Because if you allow for it, greed, personal beliefs, uh, if you're not clear about the values and you train collaboration, I think it's very easy to go self-centered because the other counterforce in our society is narcissism, right? And you can see that it's a self-centeredness that is completely destructive. So I think, yes, it's inherent. Two, you need to train on it. Otherwise, it's easy to get compromised. Now, Rick Reed feels otherwise. He's convinced we're wired for collaboration and reports that luckily there are tools to teach us. I think economists actually have it wrong that folks aren't wired to simply get everything they can get for their own self-interest. That we're actually wired as human beings to um, help each other out and to be, we are after all, social animals. So this whole idea of collaborating for the benefit of of the greater, you know, um, uh, good, I think it's in our nature, and it's just a question of, of, of supporting that. With, and certain people are just naturals at it, whether they grew up that way or have some other reason. And other folks can learn some uh, methods that help them, uh, but they're out there. There's loads of great methods. It's just a question of, um, you know, the willingness and the cultural context being... Um, uh, more supportive of that kind of, and in the incentives that folks have, whether they're companies or nonprofits, or uh, to, to collaborate, aren't always there, and that can really help a lot. Okay, so how do you do it? Rick Reed is excited about MIT Systems Mapping, which is used by many corporations. Rick used it for Garfield Foundation's Midwestern collaboration that we talked about earlier. We brought it to philanthropy. But we did it on the basis that the military, the Pentagon uses it extensively, um, and individual companies have used it extensively. Um, And even very large foundations, you know, multi-billion dollar endowed foundations, whether it's Gates or or, uh, Packard, Moore, they've used it. But internally, just to do their own internal thinking and alignment, um, not so much as at the field level. Kevin McCarthy has a practical approach to the process. I break it down for people, which is, you know, you, you should have a mental checklist if you're capable of maintaining it mentally or write it down if you don't. But when you're dealing with an issue, a situation, one of the things you must do, if not first, certainly second, is who do I need to bring into this? Who needs to be involved? Who needs to know? What, what attributes do I need to deal with this situation? So it forces you to figure out 
the collaboration path by figuring out here's the problem, here's the issue, here's the project, here's the capabilities and attributes I need to deal with this, here's who I need to get involved because of that. You know, you force yourself to go through kind of what I'll call a collaboration teamwork matrix. And I get people to think about it that way because otherwise, you know, you're only as good as the individual's ability to kind of do it naturally. And some mm -hmm. people are really good at doing it naturally, mm -hmm. right? Other people's instinct is I've got to go figure this out. I've got to do it this way. I, I, I. And the answer is, uh-uh, we, we, we. How are we going to do this? Who do I need to bring into this? Who needs to know? Don't forget the importance of trust. Here's Rick Reed. Collaboration does at base, at root, require trust. And so building trust between unlikely collaborators is one of the key elements in all this. So uh, we, we have a, there's a great expression that collaboration can only move at the speed of trust. And so I think that's an, also just an important thing to keep in mind. It doesn't just happen because it's a good idea. You have to build that, and that takes uh, time. Once trust is formed, Stephen Rubenstone feels anything is possible. It's something about collaboration and forces people to see through stereotypes and makes them think about the things they care about, which is creating stuff. And it really becomes a cool barrier buster. Let's finish our conversation with Leonardo Drew. He's the acclaimed artist whose monumental works take viewers' breath away in museums all over the world, like New York's Metropolitan Museum, where I first experienced his work. You owe it to yourself to seek them out. I met Leonardo over dinner recently, and I learned of his work in Jingdoujin, the town in China, which for centuries has been producing fine porcelain. Leonardo has an unusual collaboration with Jingdoujin artists, combining his large-scale sensibility with their fine porcelain artistry. He's fascinated with the challenge and the opportunity to combine widely different cultures and different artistic sensibilities with people speaking different languages in different geographies. Here's his take on collaboration as a barrier buster. You have to unlearn the things that you learn, but you actually have to give this idea that like uh, where you're from is superior, better, or you have to let those things go. If you go into this, you know, with a preconceived notion, then your uh, a whole experience is compromised. You should allow enough air uh, for something to breathe, for this new thing to take hold. And um, uh, it's a full-on trade-off between cultures, between people. And then you come to realize that, that we are all one in this. We're all reaching. But in order to sort of get to that place, we have to stand on the shoulders of each other. Leonardo's words seem as applicable in the office and the marketplace as they do in Jingdoujin. On that note, we'll end this second episode of the Reed Smith Conversation Series. If this is the first time you're listening to a Conversation 360 podcast or to the Reed Smith Conversations, please subscribe to Conversation 360 podcasts on your podcast app of choice. This is the second of the Reed Smith Conversation series, and there are more with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the news about Conversation 360 podcasts and this Reed Smith Conversation series. 
There's more info on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.